Well, good morning. It's great to be here this morning and uh, this first Sunday in December. Wow. Um, it's snowy and looking great. Cold this morning. Um, yeah, uh, with the flood recovery, uh, Mennonite Disaster Services is taking the lead, has been invited by the city of Princeton to take the lead in uh, recovery efforts there. And so we'll, uh, there's contact information in the bulletin, but if there's a crew of people that want to get together, let's carpool and go and help out. This is going to be a really challenging time to do any flood recovery because everything's freezing now. Everything's soaking wet and now it's turning to ice. And uh, I can't imagine what they're having to go through. Apparently about 300 homes just in Princeton alone. So um, we know something about that, but it kind of, that whole flood situation kind of made our thing two years ago look like a, you know, a little blip, a little mud puddle. Um, but we know some of, the, some of the impacts of this and how uh, devastating it is for people who lose their homes. Uh, so let's pray, and, uh, and then we'll get into God's word this morning. Father, thank you so much for your word to us. Uh, Lord, thank you that you have um, uh, provided the, the family of God to, to reach out and to meet the needs of the community around us, the world we're living in, uh, that you equip us, um, and that you call us to be involved. Uh, Father, we pray for uh, all the people that have been impacted by floods in this last month. Uh, Lord, it's just been a, a horrific time. Uh, for people, uh, Lower Mainlands, uh, Princeton, Merritt, um, other places too uh, that are now cut off, uh, highways closed, uh, travel difficult, supply chains uh, uh, restricted. Um, Lord, we pray uh, for those that have to make the decisions as to how to respond and what to do in these moments. Give them wisdom, uh, give them insight into how to best navigate the challenges that are in front of them, because there's just a mountain of challenges with all of this. Lord, for um, Samaritan's Purse, taking the lead in Abbotsford, uh, be with them, lead and guide them, help them to, uh, to, to minister well. Lord, we thank you for the fact they were able to come here, do a lot of work over a lot of months, and, uh, and uh, reach out to people with the good news of Jesus Christ. And with Mennonite Disaster Services, too, we've, we've been on the receiving end of that. Uh, so, Lord, may we now uh, turn that around and be on the giving end of it. Uh, thank you for the opportunities that are there, and, and may, we, uh, may we see how we can, we can best serve in this time. Lord, thank you for your word to us, and uh, Lord, as we start looking today in the book of Exodus, we ask that you would just lead us and guide us and teach us. In your precious name, amen. So we're going to be primarily in Exodus chapter 3 today. And uh, I spent about a good 13 years in Exodus 3 as part of working on a master's thesis. You can ask Tim and Elder Martins, I came up here one Christmas break and hid out in one of their spare rooms and poured over Hebrew text for an entire week. Um, <clears throat> uh, but over, over a number of years, my, my master's thesis focused on Exodus chapters 2 to 4 as the call of Moses. And so I have to really put a lot of that stuff on the back shelf and, uh, and not bring it into one message because I think it was 120 pages long. Uh, I've only got six this morning, so you're, you're good. 
But, but, but a brief overview. We get into the book of Exodus. The people of Israel have been in, uh, in the land of Egypt now for close to 400 years. They, they came at the invitation of Pharaoh. They came because Joseph had, had worked, had saved Egypt and, and really the whole world. God had worked through him uh, to bless all nations. And all nations came to Egypt to get food. And, and, and then we get right at the beginning of Exodus, a new king arose in Egypt who did not know Joseph. So somehow the history got lost. You know, it only takes a few generations and we start forgetting what happened in the past. You know, I, I saw a good one this last week. Somebody had posted like a, you know, you know, like you need your, now you need like a punch card, like a coffee card for your vaccinations. And I said, well, you know, I got, actually have a picture of my father-in-law's uh, punch card from the 1930s when he had to get five doses of the scarlet fever thing. So this isn't anything new. Anyway, you know, the history tends to repeat itself and we get these things and we think, oh, this is unprecedented. It's never happened before. Go back and read Ecclesiastes again, please. <laughs> it's nothing new under the sun. We've been here a lot of times. We just forget about it within a few generations. Joseph, this, this man who did so much is forgotten so quickly. You know, don't think of yourselves more highly than you ought, right? Don't think that our period of history is the pinnacle of all civilization. A new king arises and things change. The people of Israel become uh, enslaved. They're like, hey, like, and, and, and this king is also worried because God has obviously blessed them. They have increased and they have filled the land. They've actually fulfilled, in many ways, God has fulfilled through them exactly what he promised. Your descendants will increase. They will fill the land. It's the creational Everything has happened that we learned about in Genesis right from the get-go. Be fruitful and multiply, increase, subdue the land, uh, you know, rule over everything. I, I will make your descendants increase, uh, Genesis chapter 12 and 15 and 17 and 22 to Abraham so that they will fill the land. And this is the big worry for Egypt. The descendants of Abraham are filling the land. And God has blessed them greatly. There's only one problem. They're in the wrong land. And this is, this is a key point uh, to remember as we go through Exodus. God does not lead his people out of Egypt because they were suffering and oppressed. He leads them out of Egypt because of his covenant. The promise he made. He doesn't rescue them. If, even if there was no oppression, even if they just enjoyed a great time in Egypt for 400 years, God would still have to lead them to Canaan because that's what he promised. And God always fulfills his word. God's last speech, the last time we have, and God said, quote marks, before Genesis chapter 3, when he says, Moses, Moses, is Genesis 35. I don't know if you realize that, but from Genesis 35, chapter 11, uh, verse 11 and 12, God, there's no God said until Exodus chapter 3. The whole story of Joseph. No quote marks around God said. 
And it's interesting too that in, John, in Genesis 35, 12, God spoke to him, God re reiterated the promises of the Abrahamic covenant, and then it says, and then God went up from him. Now what happens in Exodus chapter three? God says, I have come down. There's this large arc, this is large story arc that's happening here. God has gone up, God is silent, now God comes down, he has seen what's going on, and he is now ready to act. God now speaks, he has now come down, his covenant still stands. And we think of this and we go 400 years in Egypt. 400 years since the promise to Abraham. Where was God when it got hard? Where was God when the oppression came down? Where was God when the babies were being killed? Where was God? 400 years. And we ask the question, why does God wait so long to deal with the pain in our world and the pain of our lives? Why even now has he waited close to 2,000 years to come back? Where is the Prince of Peace when the world needs him so badly? Let's stand together and read Exodus chapter 3. I'm not going to have it on the screen this morning. I want you to simply hear the word of the Lord this is how the word of God was meant to be experienced, was to be in community and read aloud. The burning bush. Here we go. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here am I. Here I am. And then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land. A land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt." But Moses said to God, "'Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt?' He said, but I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, what, what, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, 
The God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what you have been and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us, and now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. And after that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty, but each woman shall ask her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver or gold jewelry or for clothing and you shall put them on your sons and daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. This is the word of the Lord. Um, I'm hesitant to stop there because the conversation keeps going and Moses' next words are, they're not going to listen to me. <laughs> and I can't do it and it's just no. And Moses is resistant all the way through, but that's a whole other story. What we want to focus on today is what God is saying here and how God is revealing who he is to Moses. The first thing he does is he reveals his holiness to his servant, the first five verses. There's this burning bush and it's not, it's, Moses is seeing it and it's, this thing's on fire and yet it's not consumed and Moses is curious, so he goes over to check it out. And this voice comes and says, take off your shoes. The place where you are standing is holy ground. And one of the first things to, to note about this is that God's presence makes the place holy. God's presence makes the place holy. Holy means to be set apart for sacred use. It's set apart for the presence of God. Wayne Grudem in his systematic theology says that God's holiness means that he is separated from sin and devoted to seeking his own honor, his own glory. He is other. And this, this place now is a place of otherness. This, but it is only that insofar and inasmuch as God is present in it. No, it's interesting, you know, archaeologists have tried to kind of pig, figure out where Mount Horeb is, and they've tried to figure out all these different things about where maybe God appeared to people. But really, we don't know. And I think that's intentional on God's part. So, because we're so prone to setting up shrines and then saying, oh, that special place, you know, it always now has this specialness about it. And it's like, well, if God's no longer present there, then there's nothing special about it. It's just another mountain. It's always been just a mountain. It's God's presence that makes it holy. And Moses only knows that this place is holy because God tells him. 
God declares it, God reveals it, God says this is now holy. And all the way through scripture, when we see, you know, set apart for me Aaron and his sons, that they may be holy to me, set apart for me, it's God's declaration. And over and over, the only way we know that things are holy is when God declares it to be so. Moses only knows that this place is holy because God reveals it. And later on, we get to Exodus 19, and God meets them at this mountain, what, what God promised here. He said, you will come and you will serve God, worship me on this mountain. Then, then there are, you know, the, he tells Moses, set up a perimeter so people can't get up. And then you and the elders of Israel come a little closer. And then only you will come to the top of the mountain where I will meet with you face to face. And, and so there's like this layers of holiness in approaching God and only Moses can go in there. And later on the tabernacle and the temple, there's the outer court for everybody else. There's a holy place where the priests and the elders serve. And then there's the holy of holies, the most holy place where the high priest meets with God once a year. And it's God who defines what is holy. And it's God's presence that creates holy space and this has to be revealed by God himself. It's all about God speaking and letting us know what he's like, how holy he is, and how present he is with us. You'll see on the, on the handout, there's a statement about special revelation there. I'm only going to touch on this briefly, but... Think of uh, Psalm 119, how can a man keep his way pure by living according to your word? And over and over, it's about God has spoken, God has spoken, God has revealed his will and his ways and his holy expectations for us as his people and the word of God, God's speaking voice to us, gives us insight into who he is uh, above all. It's not... You know, a lot of people think this is like life's little instruction book. This is about God's revealed glory. It's not, you know, just a list of things to do or not do. It's the words of the living creator, God. It's not a handbook of moral principles. It's the word of God who wants to have a relationship with us. And so he speaks to us. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and all things were created by Him. There's nothing in creation that doesn't have its source in the Word of God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now that glory that, that, that Moses hid his face from is now enfleshed in the person of Jesus Christ. This is what Advent's all about. God spoke it many times in various ways to, to our forefathers through the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us definitively by his son. Hebrews, 4, 1 to 4, Hebrews chapter 1, 1 to 4. God's special revelation, his word, his act of speaking, his act of relating to us in words we can understand, in a life we can see. This is the holiness of God revealed. And God's holiness is revealed in personal relational language. He calls Moses by name. Look at that. Moses, Moses, the first words out of his mouth are to call a man to himself by name. 
And Moses answers, here am I. And, and this, this one Hebrew word, hineni, means I'm here, I'm ready, I will listen, and I will do. It's an active word. And we see this all through Scripture when God calls twice, when he calls a man's name twice. Abram, Abram, stop, don't touch this. Here I am, stop, don't touch him. All throughout, this is the appropriate response to just say, here I am. What's, what, what do you want to reveal to me? God's holiness is revealed in a personal, relational language. He calls Moses by name. God's holy presence is visualized as fire, this burning bush, the guiding pillar of fire, the fire and the smoke that consumes the temple and the tabernacle uh, so that the priest can't even enter. Our God is a consuming fire, Hebrews 12, uh, 12 25 to 29. The presence of God visualized as a fire. Think of Pentecost in Acts chapter 1 and 2, when the tongues of fire land on the followers of Jesus and they are empowered to preach the gospel. God's holy presence transforms the ordinary, everyday mountain, bush, tent, temple, people of God into bearers of his holiness. Because he is present and his presence makes it holy. So God revealed his holiness to Moses. The second thing God does is he reveals his identity. And there would be a lot to unpack here, uh, uh, tons to get into. Um, I'm going to see if the Bible Project guys, uh, Tim Mackey, has put together a thing about the revelation of the divine name. If not, I'll I'll, I'll do one myself this week that kind of walks through some of the technicalities of this. It's kind of like a geek out moment, but I'll spare you that for now. Well, let's take this in order. In verses 6 to 15, God reveals his identity to Moses. First of all, he, he reveals himself in relation to Moses' own family. I am the God of your father, singular. I'm the God of your father. And then he backs it all the way up to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's the God who is related to a family he has called for his purposes and his glory. He identifies himself in relation to Moses' family. Second, he identifies himself in relation to salvation history. I I have heard the cries of my people, and I know their suffering, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and bring them out of the land to a good land. And this also recalls Genesis chapter 15. Remember when God appeared as a, 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 a flaming torch? Again, it's this fiery presence of God that declares this. Know for certain, 1513, that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and they will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years, but I will bring judgment on the nation they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. And so God identifies himself in relation to the whole story, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, to bless all nations and through this family, bless the whole world. Third, God identifies himself in relation to his people. I know their suffering. I know their suffering. And this isn't just a head knowledge. No, this is, 
This is a heart level, gut level knowledge of what people are going through. I know that they're in suffering. If we go back, the, the, the preface to this whole thing was in chapter two, the last, last two verses. And God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel and God knew. He hears, he remembers his covenant. He sees his people. He knows what they're going through. He identifies himself in relation to his people and what they're going through. And fourthly, God identifies himself in relation to his purpose. This is what I'm going to do. And Moses, guess what? You're my guy. You get to help out in this. I have come down. I'm going to do this. Now I'm going to send you to Pharaoh so that you can lead my people out of Egypt. And Moses is like, whoa. I was with you up until that point. <laughs> but, but who am I? Okay, now, I'll talk about this a little later in the application, but just, just Exodus chapter 6, we don't, we don't get to know this until later. Moses is 80 years old. He's got a wife, he's got kids, he's got a comfortable job. He's got life made. I'm just going to hang out in the desert, do the sheep thing, do the family thing. That's it. I'm 80. What's God going to possibly call me to do at this point in life? <laughs> Next service, this will be a lot more awkward for people. <laughs> As I look out over the younger crowd. Moses' first question, who am I? Who, who am I to do this? And God's, what's God's answer? I will be with you. So he doesn't actually answer the question, who am I? Well, Moses, here's why I've called you. And we've made up all sorts of stuff, like, well, Moses was raised here, so he knew the Egyptian court thing. God, God doesn't care. God doesn't care where you've been or what the experiences are, how old you are, or, or how comfortable you are at the moment. He is with him. He's like, I am with you. And, and actually, it's two words in Hebrew. Eche <laughs> yamak, and I, I've looked at this phrase throughout all of Scripture, and it's not, it, it's, it's a great phrase. I am with you. But every time it happens, it happens to people who, who are being called into a task that will absolutely fail if God isn't. So it's not a call to an easy task. It's a call to an impossible task without God. Always. Because it's ultimately not important who we are. It's ultimately important who he is and the fact that he says, I am with you. Again, in the broader biblical context, this isn't an invitation to an easy life nor a promise of success. It is a promise of his presence with us no matter how hard it gets. And get, get to, uh, take some time this week and, and read from Exodus 1 to Exodus 6. Uh, Pastor Ben next week's going to be uh, going through the plagues with us. Um, Hopefully that won't happen to him. Um, but Moses' first run at this is like, he goes to Pharaoh and says, uh, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, no. And what's Moses' response? Oh God, look, this is what happened. Nothing, nothing worked. Wah. Send somebody else. And then he goes to the people. And of course, this whole thing makes it worse for the people. And the people are like, we don't want you to lead us anyway. And God says, lead 
Anyway, regardless of how stubborn Pharaoh is, and regardless of the fact that the whole bunch of Israelites don't want anything to do with you, you're, you're the leader. This is the loneliness of leadership sometimes. The people don't want to be led. The government's against you. <laughs> and you're called to lead anyway. God says, I'm going to be with you. That's the determining factor. And he says this over and over again through this passage. I can't speak well, chapter 4. Don't worry. Echeyemach, your mouth. I will be with your mouth. <laughs> I'm going to be with you all the way through this. That's the only way God's mission happens. Matthew 28, 20, the last words out of Jesus' mouth in Matthew's gospel, Behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. I'm sending you out to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, teaching them to live in obedience to all I've commanded you, and I will be with you because without me, you can't do it. We can't do anything without the presence of God. I am the vine, you are the branches. You've got to remain in me. Apart from me, you can do nothing. God's identity is that he is with us. I am with you. Well, Moses then says, well, great, you're with me, but who are you? I'm going to go to these people, I'm going to say, hey, God of our fathers, ancestors, 400 years ago says, time to be free. What do I say to them? What's his name? And Moses, God's response, question mark, is it really an answer? I am who I am, or a lot of our footnotes will say, I will be who I will be, and Again, there's a whole lot of technical Hebrew stuff to go on in here, and I'll deal with that in a geek post someday. The basic verb here is existence, to be. Existence. It's the same word as echye yamach, I will be with you. Echye asher echye. I will be who, that, or which I am, or I will be what I am. I am what I will be. Depends on how you deal with this grammatically, but the main point here that, I, that I've come to understand this in, in the broader scope of things is this. God is basically saying, you will know who I am as you experience my presence with you. I am the God who knows your pain and your suffering and your stress and your sorrow and your brokenness because I am and always will be. And I know, and I have seen, and I have heard, and I have remembered covenant. I am the God who loves you and is committed to you. I, I am the God of your father, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This last 400 years hasn't been a write-off. This, this time of slavery hasn't gone unnoticed. This time of pain is on my radar. I am completely aware of where you're at. And I am the God who is going to act for your good so that you may see my glory. One of the key words throughout Exodus, especially the next uh, 15 or so chapters, is then you will know that I am the Lord and there is no other. God reveals his identity to his servant, but his servant is going to learn the identity of God through experiencing life with God. I am with you. 
says the Lord. And that's the whole heart of the call of Moses. Is that his identity is related to his active presence with us. Defined by that. Thirdly, God reveals his power to his servant. And we'll see this a lot more next week as we go through the, the, the plague cycles. The end, of the, the end of the chapter in the last few verses. I know the king of Egypt won't let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. You know, it's kind of funny. He doesn't talk about plagues. He doesn't talk about punishment. He talks about wonders. My wonders. It's going to cause you to stop and wonder. And fill your heart with awe. God not only knows the heart of his people and what they're going through, he knows the heart of Pharaoh. God is sending Moses to Pharaoh as a leader, but God is the one who is going to act to change Pharaoh's heart. God will move the hearts of the people so that they will fulfill the covenant promise of Abraham. Remember, if we went back to Genesis 15, verses 13 to 14, talked about plundering the Egyptians, and here God says, I will give this people favor in the sight of all the Egyptians so that you will plunder them on the way out. God is going to move the hearts of the people. And the main point here is Moses is not the one to convince Pharaoh. I'm sending you to him, but he's not going to be convinced. I am going to act to change things. It's not in your hands to change Pharaoh's heart. It's mine. It's God's own action, God's judgment, God's power alone that makes the difference. Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Moses is sent, but God will see it done. God's mission and his missional people must find their foundation in the holiness and the identity and the power of God, who is the God who acts and who is the God who is with us. Unless he's with us, we are not a holy people. Unless he is with us, we are not his people. Unless he is with us, we are not an empowered people. The presence of God determines and defines our reality. So, three questions for the head, the heart, and the hands. First question, how might God be sending you on mission to declare the good news that he rescues sinners? Now, it's not an if question. It's how might God be sending you this week to declare the good news. It's not an if. God hears, he sees, and he knows the plight of the people around us. He knows their pains, their struggles, and their sorrows. He sends his people with the good news of God's redemption, restoration, and reconciliation. He sends his people to be with people in pain and struggle and suffering. God didn't just come to make his home among his people. He came to set them free to lead others out of bondage. It's not just proclaiming the gospel and giving them information. It's about living it out with people 
so they can see and hear and know that the gospel is active in our own lives. And then taking action as we take action to bring relief and compassion to those who are in suffering. And this may mean loading up the van to go to people in Princeton and help them clean out flood damage and freezing temperatures. It won't be fun at all. It may mean supporting disaster services and MCC and Samaritan's Purse with more finances. Because God always asks us to get skin in the game, right? Moses, I'm sending you. I'm going to do all the work, but you're involved. God takes action to relieve suffering. He calls Moses to partner with them, and he hasn't changed. So how might God be sending you on mission to declare the good news that he rescues sinners? Question for the heart. As we consider Moses' responses to God here, here's the question. In what area of your life are you refusing to trust the great I am? Repent now and obey in faith. Moses didn't want the job. He really didn't. By the end of the chapter, and the end of chapter four, he is flat out refusing. Some translations put this still as questions. What if they don't believe me? But chapter 4.1 is just a categorical statement. They're not going to believe me. I can't speak well. Send somebody else. He doesn't ask any questions in chapter 4. He just makes categorical statements of refusal. But God has told him repeatedly he's going to be with him. I'm going to be with you. God himself will be at work to secure the release of Israel. And yet this doesn't convince Moses it's possible or that he's the right man for the job. And John Goldingay in the old, his Old Testament theology says this, Moses has grown entirely at home in Midian. He's content to see out his days as a shepherd and family man. He's reluctant to be drafted into a hazardous looking commission and wishes God would just use somebody more obvious. You ever feel that? Oh, there's this great need out there. I wonder who else can do it. Oh, there's this great need out here. What's the pastor going to do about it? Oh, there's this great need out there. How is the church going to respond? We never ask, there's this great need out there. How am I being equipped to meet that need? How rarely we ask that question. See, if God reveals a need to you, he may be involving you in the work he wants to do through you to meet that need. And you can't stay where you are and go with God. Yeah, Henry Blackaby, experiencing God, states that over and over. If God calls you, he has called you for his mission, and you can't stay where you are and go with him. Remember, if God has called you to relationship with himself, he has called you for his mission. 1 Corinthians 12, he has gifted everyone who has come to him with the gift of the Holy Spirit for the good of building up the church and the ministry that God has called us into. Ephesians 2.10. God has called us to himself to do good works, which he has prepared in advance for us to do. He wants us involved in his mission as active participants. So where in your life are you refusing the great I am and his call to be on his mission? Repent now. Obey in faith. Take that step. Lastly, our hands. 
Who in your sphere of influence needs to hear the good news of the gospel? Where are you being sent for God's glory? God's mission always happens through his people. God always calls people to partner with him. He could have driven out all these inhabitants of the land. He didn't need Joshua, but he called Joshua. He could have uh, changed Pharaoh's heart, led his people out of, the, out of Egypt, but he chose Moses to be a leader over and over again. You know, God could have let the whole world know the gospel, but he entrusted it to the apostles who entrusted it to the followers of Jesus. And so it goes. It's a hands-on mission. Jesus called the disciples to be with him that he might send them out to preach, Mark 3, 14. The greatest commandment, love God and love people, has to be lived. It has to be the focus of our lives, our work and our investments. Here's the thing, Jesus never asked us to give 10%. He asked us to surrender our lives completely to his lordship. And the new year is coming, resolutions. What kind of resolutions are you thinking about? How, maybe ask this question, how is God going to be glorified and the gospel proclaimed in everything I do this year? God called Moses at 80 years old to leave his comfortable life away from the conflict, away from the crowds. His life was pretty simple up until the last 40 years of his life. God called Moses into the middle of his purposes for the good of his people, the glory of his name, and he promised to be with him the whole way. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the challenge of your word. And as we look at the story of Moses over these next months, may we continually see not just the work of Moses and the struggle he had, but the promise of your presence in the midst of every struggle that he faced. And Lord, it was a difficult, difficult task that you called him to. And yet you promised to be with him. And so in the midst of our difficulties, in the midst of the challenges we face, would we rest on the fact that you said, I will never leave you or forsake you. No one can snatch you out of my hand. Surely I will be with you to the very end of the age. Your presence is with us. Lord, help us to see the holiness of that more and more. Lead us into this week for your glory and for the good of those around us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand in the benediction this morning is from 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 to 11. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled, sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks the oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen.
Amen. Have a great week.